This is Diving Board, a new show about artists, the art they create, and the wide range of social and cultural ideas they explore. I'm Bill Valerio, and I run the Woodmere Art Museum, where we tell the stories of Philadelphia's art and artists. And I'm Stephanie Marudis of Cuvenda Media, where we produce Narratives for Social Change. And this is our final part of the series, part three, Reclaiming Violet Oakley and Why She Matters Today. But if you haven't heard parts one and two or our preview, please go back and listen to those. Um, so we're going to get started. Here we are in the Westmount Airy neighborhood of Philadelphia uh, in the studio of artist Peter Payon. And what we're hearing right now is Peter uh, turning the crank on a large wooden easel that once belonged to Violet Oakley. Well, it's a 19th century crank-up easel, um, extremely well-built and very strong. It has a second crank, which operates the stem so that it can be moved forward and backward according to the light source. And it's in very good shape. It's a working easel, and I use it. And I'll be using it for the rest of my life because it's, it's so well constructed. Peter is an easel painter, and he's a big fan of Violet Oakley's work. And he remembers hearing about her uh, when he was an art student in Philadelphia during the 1950s at the Philadelphia College of Art. At some point, Peter started collecting photographs of artists in their studios, and he wanted to get a photograph of Violet Oakley in her studio. So he called up Edith Emerson uh, to ask her if he could get one. I told her who I was, and she recognized my name, and she invited me out to the studio. And I had seen her over the years at events, but never really talked to her. And we sat in the studio, and she pointed out a number of things that were hers. I looked at her paintings. She had a lot of Violet Oakleys against the wall, and we saw those, and we walked around. Uh, the studio was in really bad shape. Um, it had had a major leak, and um, it was very evident that a lot of it was crumbling away. Um, when we sat down, I told her what I was here for. She got up, and she went over and took out a box and went through the box and found a photograph. You know, I offered to buy it, and she said, no, no, I want you to have it, and she gave it to me. And today, the photograph is in the exhibition of Violet Oakley's work at Woodmere. Peter is a great friend of the museum, and he serves on the museum's collection committee. And he has shared with us his insights and his thoughts about why Violet Oakley is one of the great muralists of American art. She was very fortunate to be able to execute that talent because it's a very different talent than that of an easel painter. A muralist has to encounter not only the image, but how it carries from long distances, how it fits into and works with the architecture. Not only is she a very special kind of talent, but she's in a category of her own. So if you really want to study Violet Oakley's murals, either as interested in art or as a student, you have to go to Harrisburg or you have to go to wherever the murals are. And, and that's very different than going to a museum and seeing five or six of the artists you like. And the fact that 
Oakley spent so much of her career producing public art might be one of the biggest reasons why she's not too well known, as we're about to hear from Sylvia Yunt. She didn't really have a market for her work because so much of the work she was producing was not for sale. She didn't have a dealer. She was producing work on commission in public sites. Sylvia got to know about Violet Oakley's work when she was at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, where she was once the chief curator. And today she's the Lawrence A. Fleischmann curator in charge of the American Wing at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. And she has a few other thoughts about why Violet Oakley has been left out of the canon of American art as we know it today. I mean, I think there are a couple of different factors, primarily the fact that she was a woman artist who had a fairly uh, local career, one could say, even though she had this international profile in her lifetime. But being based in Philadelphia primarily throughout her career, there is still a bias, I would say, or had been a bias in the way art history had been written, particularly American art history, as New York being the center of the universe, of course, and the center of the art world from the 19th century on. And at the same time, the fact that she was a woman and, you know, the American public often seems to be able to keep two American women artists in their minds at one time, and that is Mary Cassatt and George O'Keefe. And there are also a few other factors that could have been at play. Mural paintings, stained glass, and the American Renaissance fell out of favor. And also the fact that she began her career working in a more commercial realm as an illustrator. And even though in the 1890s, when many of these artists were coming of age, they had quite high standing, their work was very popular, very revered, from Pyle to Wyeth to Parrish, Um, to Oakley um, in later years, that divide between the fine art and the commercial realm with the commercial material that was produced for publication in magazines or calendars or whatever was seen as kind of less pure in a way and was not taken as seriously. So I think she was kind of hit from all sides. So as we've just heard from Sylvia, a lot of possibilities as to why Violet Oakley has not gotten the recognition she deserves, but that might soon change. There has been for some time, but a real interest in kind of rediscovering artists for not just the specialists, but for the general public and particularly women artists, because we all know that there were many women artists who were lost to history and that there were far more talented and successful artists than the two, like O'Keefe and Cassatt, that we all seem to know about. So I think that's part of it, just the the opportunity to discover someone new and fresh, particularly someone that has such a really extraordinary biography. For people who've never heard of her, she was certainly the most famous woman artist of her lifetime with these amazing prestigious projects and many, many awards. That's my friend and colleague, Kathleen Foster, the Robert J. McNeil Curator of American Art at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Kathleen was also the curator in charge of the collection at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, and she reminds us that Philadelphia was a leading center for educating women in the arts, and this helps us understand the trajectory of Violet Oakley's career. Philadelphia had one of the earliest schools of design for women. It's now Moore College of Art, still going strong. But also the Pennsylvania Academy was majorly reformed in the 1880s under Thomas Aikens to give equal resources to women students. So that by the time she landed at the Academy, there was a tradition of giving top flight professional training to women at the Pennsylvania Academy. Then she transferred over to Drexel, where certainly Howard Pyle 
had mostly women in his classes, and he was very interested in getting women into the mainstream, of giving them projects in commercial art. He was active in finding commissions for all of his students to help them get work on their resume, even as they were students. So the support that women got in Philadelphia was really extraordinary, and she was, I think, one of the great products of that system. When she was only like 30, she won the gold medal from the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts and I think was stunned herself to find herself in a circle that included other gold medal winners like Thomas Aikens and Winslow Homer. I mean, she was, at a very young age, lifted into this pantheon of American art. Even so, Oakley's work eventually fell out of favor. I think one of the reasons that we lost touch with Violet Oakley is the historical eclecticism that you see in her work. She was such a scholar and a sponge for other ideas. So when you look at her Harrisburg murals, you can see that she has been looking at medieval manuscripts and Middle Eastern miniatures and the Pre-Raphaelite paintings from England of the 19th century, as well as the kind of realist um, tendency in the early 20th century. She's pulling from so many different directions, and it's that combination, I think, that's exciting when we see her work, and you can see her imagination and this tremendous curiosity and thirst for other traditions. But as time progressed, realism and storytelling in art became unpopular, especially going into the high modernism times of the 1950s and 60s. But I just think this eclecticism of learning from the past and bringing ideas from the past, that too was seen as the past, that something that you wanted to move beyond in order to invent something original. So abstract expressionism could not be more different from Violet Oakley. And I think we see Violet Oakley now over this mid-20th century change of taste. We have to kind of go back and rediscover her historicism as having a merit, having a beauty, and having a deep meaning that we can recover now. Our final stop in telling Violet's story is at her grave. And it turns out she's not buried in Philadelphia, but instead she was laid to rest in the family plot at the Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, New York. And I found a picture online of her grave and it contains this epitaph, death cannot kill what never dies. So I looked up the origin of the quote, and it's attributed to William Penn. Of course, it makes complete sense given Violet's strong belief in the Quaker ideals that William Penn put forward. And here we are, Bill and I standing in front of Violet's grave. I see George Oakley, married to Elizabeth Travis, Georgiana Oakley, born May 16, 1825. I don't see Violet here. Let's look around. Ah, here we go. Oh, and Violet Oakley has a rainbow pride flag. That is the coolest thing. And, you know, it, it is too bad that Violet is not buried with her life partner to whom she was married in every way except officially married, uh, Edith Emerson. Violet composed for herself a perfect epitaph, death cannot kill what never dies. Because her life, the output of everything that she's ever done 
you know, in her journey as an artist is about the lasting power of art. You know, it's why we toil in museums, because we do believe that art has a power to change the world for the better. We certainly have that in the work of Violet Oakley. She worked against all odds in her life to be able to do what it was her calling to do. Um, she had that ambition from early on to be an artist on a grand scale. And certainly there's didacticism in her art and in her voice. I mean, she is imperious. She knows that she's right. And that gives her extraordinary confidence. I mean, my sense is that people, you know, could find Violet Oakley to be a difficult person because, you know, her convictions were so strong. And so for me, you know, Violet is such a positive force because she does believe in art as something that can change the world, that can bring people together. Art for Violet, you know, does not exist on its own. What she's interested in is the conversation between art and the broader forces of the world. And, you know, that's her legacy. Some people think that the golden age is, is past. And, uh, but there are those who believe that the golden age is the age toward which we approach. And I think that's much more helpful. Have any of you thought of the golden age as all in the past? I wish you'd answer my questions. I like to talk to, with you, not to you. Well, we're coming to the golden age, and I think that's more cheerful. And at Woodmere, as we celebrate Violet Oakley's legacy, we've organized many different events that build on her voice and express the social change that she championed. Waiting for phone calls that never come. Waiting for words of appreciation that never come. Waiting for equal pay that never comes. It just never comes. It just never. That's how I do it when I do it live. <laughs> That's Philadelphia poet and activist Ursula Rucker. How do you push the boundaries? You push them. I mean, there's no way to dive into it but to dive into it. You cannot be concerned with what the reaction is going to be. I'm like, hey, if I'm going to censor myself, then forget it. People have been writing poems to tell their stories and record history and do everything since the beginning of time. Poetry is so big, and I like being part of that ancient, big, full of possibilities thing. Don't make me small. <laughs> I am not small. <laughs> In the work that Ursula creates, she takes on a variety of big social and cultural issues. And most recently, she's been involved with a collaborative project called the Porchlight Initiative, which focuses on strengthening community wellness through public art. And she has been doing workshops and open mic nights in Philadelphia's Kensington neighborhood, which is a community that's been hit hard by the opioid epidemic. They are real people with love and struggle and families and no families and 
problems and dreams just like everybody else. They unfortunately, you know, have an addiction that drives them. That most everyone that I've met that has told their story says, I don't want to live like this and tries to tell other people not to live like this. And in the midst of that, they have formed a family and a community that is tighter than most families and communities. And you may think it's crazy and weird. It is an amazing thing to witness. They hold each other up. They look out for each other. And each of them has their own thing. Like there are singers, there are poets, there are storytellers, there are musicians. I cannot explain to you the feeling. You have to be there. And I, I ask people to come, and I think people are hesitant to come. I understand that, you know, but once you come, you will not be leaving there with, uh, you know, ill feelings in the end. Yeah, you have to feel the pain. You got to feel it. So I'm going to really work hard to see if we can continue it because I see real change. And Ursula Rucker will be at Woodmere on Saturday, January 13th, for two events in the context of our Violet Oakley exhibition. She will be holding what she calls an anti-workshop for an exploration of word, sound, music, emotion, thought, and theme that will guide you in the poetry writing and performance process and provide a safe and non-restrictive space. And she'll also be giving a live performance of her work that will address themes of peace, love, truth, injustice, freedom, humanity, healing, and revolution, to name a few. So come check it out, along with our retrospective show about Violet Oakley. The exhibition is up until January 21st, 2018. And Sylvia Yunt, curator in charge of the American Wing at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, who we heard from on this podcast, will be giving a lecture about Violet Oakley on January 20th at Woodmere. Go to our website, woodmereartmuseum.org, and follow us at Woodmere Art. Before we wrap up, special thanks to you, Stephanie, for your reporting and production work, along with your colleague, Jessica Korkunis, composer Justin Geller, and of course, our wonderful staff at Woodmere for their hard work to help us launch this podcast. We also want to thank Patricia Lykos-Ricci, Sylvia Yunt, Kathleen Foster, Peter Payone, and Ursula Rucker for making time to talk with us. And a very special thanks to you, Bill, for being open to making a podcast together. We appreciate all of you out there for listening. And on behalf of Woodmere Art Museum and Cuvenda Media, this podcast is dedicated to the bold vision of Violet Oakley and Edith Emerson and their commitment to Philadelphia's art and artists. <laughs>